Okay, we're live with Tyson Batino. Tyson, welcome to the podcast, and please introduce yourself. So my name is Tyson. I'm originally from the state of Hawaii in the U.S. I've been in Japan for 14 years. I've taught English in high or elementary, junior, senior high school. I've taught business lessons. I've taught uh, kids, adults. I've also done translation, and about I've or and I also did management at a large company that probably most of you know called Interac, managing uh, 600 teachers with our team. And now I am the co-founder of an English school chain called OneCoin English. I'm the only foreign founder. I have two Japanese co-founders. At the moment, as of January 2018, we have seven schools, over 4,000 active students. And also in December, I just founded a Japanese language school. (laughs) If that wasn't wasn't enough. Uh, And the Japanese language school, we're running it in the morning in our Shinjuku school. Okay. And we made a partnership with one of the biggest schools, private schools in Tokyo, and they're providing us the teachers and the awesome educational materials, and we're just running all the operations. And that's going pretty good. In one month, I think we've managed to get about 12 students. Oh, that's that's pretty good in just a month. Um, yeah. just, just, um, just for the sake of the audience here's could you not mess with the the headset and microphone? It's giving some feedback on the audio. Okay, good. So, uh, wow. So you've done all of this within fourteen years of arriving in Japan. Yeah, yeah that is correct. So, uh, really, just to, to start from the beginning, why did you choose to move to Japan, and what what was the motivation for moving to Japan in the first place? So I'm actually uh, half Japanese. So my mother is uh, ethnically Japanese, but not culturally Japanese. But uh, I wanted to get in touch with my Japanese family roots. And actually, I have a lot of Japanese family in Okinawa who don't speak English. Wow. And have have you... Were you able to visit Japan before you decided to move to Japan? No, I, um, I, so I came here after, immediately after graduating through a company called Geos, which no longer exists, right. but it's, uh, it's basically ECC. <laughs> it's the easiest way I can describe it. Right, right, yeah. Um, there's been a, a few of those big companies that have gone under in, in the past 10 years or so, haven't there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But so you originally came in through Geos and for those unfamiliar with Geos, what kind of company is Geos? You said it's similar to ECC. What is what what are those? What what is what is uh, ECC? Gotcha. Geos, yeah. So the the easiest way to describe it is so Geos had a, about three hundred schools all over Japan. 
uh, among all the English schools chains, they had the strongest study abroad program. So actually, to this day, the study abroad program is still in existence and going very well. But the domestic uh, schools, they closed down pretty much all the schools. And the company that bought Nova when they closed down also bought Geos and took over some of the schools and just now manage it primarily as a kid's school. Okay. Okay. So uh, they've pretty much just transitioned into either teaching only kids under new management or doing the uh, uh, study abroad uh, or for, foreign language outside of Japan, correct? Yeah. And uh, it's the ECC and Geos is like a Puma Adidas kind of thing. Okay. <laughs> where they used, the two people work, they created Adidas, but one split up afterwards and went on to create Puma and they're kind of similar companies. Yeah. That's and a, sim- oh, some, sorry. What? Oh, no, I was just going to say sounds similar to, to Eon as well. They um, they branched off from a, another company or a company branched off from them. But Maybe it was Eon, not ECC. Yeah, it was Eon or ECC. Yeah. It's, anyway, it's one of the, the large uh, English school chains and Geos is no longer around. So, so you, you originally came in through Geos, where was your original placement? I had to think about that, but uh, <laughs> it's been it that long, right? In, yeah. yeah, it was in a town of about fifty thousand, on um, called Maizuru in Kyoto. Wow. Okay. And it was it was based on the Japan Sea. It's right on the Japan Sea, and it's about a ten minute train ride into Fukui okay. prefecture. Okay. So it, it actually sounds like quite a quite a nice place to live, you know, the nice view of the sea and everything. Yeah, the people there were really awesome. They took really good care of me, the Japanese and foreigners up there. Also, it was amazing during summertime. But the winters were a bit too harsh for me. Were they? Oh, well, you know, you're from you're from Hawaii, so you're probably not used to at the time weren't used to uh uh japanese winters right yeah i think um after one winter uh snow lost its appeal for me (laughs) from being novel to uh not again yeah that's exactly how i felt the first time the first big snow hit here Uh, i think it was since i had moved here the first large snow was maybe almost five years ago they they started calling it the snowpocalypse at the time <laughs> and it it, it it i don't i don't know about tokyo I, I know it hit tokyo pretty hard but i know it shut down utsunomiya for at least 3 or 4 days like i think i remember that yeah it was it was pretty bad i'd never seen that much snow in my entire life so and yeah, I, I like like i said like you said it, i quickly awesome. got over the the uh, the novelty of it after that one winter I remember you telling me about that. Who who came up with the name uh, Snowpocalypse? I had heard it just, you know, one of the random news websites started calling it the Snowpocalypse. Or, you know, so <laughs> I thought, you know, it, 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 it seems very apocalyptic, at least where I was. So I wonder if it was the rising wasabi. <laughs> it, 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 could, it could have been. It could have been. Um, I wouldn't put it past. I don't know if they existed then, but... Uh, Rising Wasabi is like the onion version of uh, of Japan news, right? 
Yeah, I think anyone who's been here, even even for those who just came to Japan, uh, I think you'll find some article that matches some experience you've had, and they put a nice, fun Japanese twist onto it. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's quite it's quite humorous. Isn't there a Japanese version of it as well? Ah, uh, yeah, I think they they're make they did a draft or they do Japanese translations of their articles. That's pretty good. So, reach the uh, the local audience as well. So, yeah, hope hopefully. Uh, or I, I mentioned because I I would like them to continue existing. Yeah, <laughs> and so I would love for them to get uh, a bigger audience because their content is really funny. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if if you're a fan of the Onion, you'll enjoy the Rising Wasabi. It's <laughs> it's quite a good uh, website. So, how long were you in uh, Kyoto Prefecture? In the, I was the there town? for 18 months, and I tr I quit my job even though I really loved uh, Geos and I liked uh, the people I was working with. But I quit in December <laughs> wow. to move. Mm -hmm. To move down to Nara to escape a second winter. Okay, so the the winters in Nara are that much different than where you were. Oh yeah, because so like, uh, they're really close. I mean, Nara is relatively close to Kyoto, right? Yeah, I'd say from an east-west point of view, but I live all or I live all the way north okay. in Kyoto, so it's not. Uh, the weather between the Kyoto that everyone knows and uh, Maizuru is completely different. Okay. So it snows every year, uh, and it's uh, the winds are really piercing, and I think uh, the snow is uh, several centimeters. Wow. Okay. So I, I, I had no clue. I, it seems like that sort of uh, weather would be more on this end of the of the main island. You know. Yeah, I think it actually it snows more there than Tochigi. I I wouldn't I wouldn't or be surprised. Tochigi, if, I mean, Utsunomiya. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, because some parts of Tochigi get snow all the time, like Nico <laughs> and Nasu. But yeah, Utsunomiya probably gets one big snow a year. Yeah, and what what I mean by big is like you know last year we had a snow where we had to basically spend a few hours shoveling all the snow out around from our school so <laughs> that was that was a fun start to the day oh well, do you guys have to go buy a shovel uh i think we we had a shovel and then but we needed one more so in in place of a shovel i think we had some some spare like wooden planks and that actually works quite well as as a snow <laughs> shovel so yeah it was uh that was fun, shoveling snow for hour, for four or five hours, and then starting your regular day. So, <laughs> yeah, but it it was it was nice. Um, I haven't really bothered to get any snow tires, so driving driving in that weather is still not that fun. But hopefully this year it won't be as snowy. But uh, so you moved down to Nara, right? Yes, I moved on to Nara and. Uh... So in Geos, I was teaching kids and adults, and in Nara, I started as an elementary school teacher, as an ALT. Okay, so you worked for the local city there? I was working for a local dispatch company. Okay. Actually. Okay. Um, 
And uh, so I moved to Nara. Uh, luckily, uh, I had a f Japanese friend from university whose family offered, or they offered me a homestay. Okay. Okay. And uh, he had just come, or he'd finished university in the US and he'd just come back to Japan. So he was living with his family, and I lived with them for about uh, one and a half years as well. Really? And okay. That that's pretty cool. How was that experience then? That really, really helped my Japanese. Like I'll say, my Japanese improved a lot while doing a homestay, and also it was very nice uh, having Japanese cooked for breakfast and dinner. Yeah, yeah. You didn't so, really have to worry about your meals too much. No, it's uh, breakfast. They took care of it. Uh, had a nice Japanese breakfast. You know, different breakfast every day. Oh, sorry about that. Just my mic. Uh, and also dinner. So I'd go to work. I would have school lunch, and come home. I'd have a nice dinner. So you basically didn't have to pay for any of your meals. Almost. I. It was included in the rent, but. Okay. Uh, I think I only paid around like forty thousand yen. That's not for that's food not, and rent. Yeah, that's not too bad, man. Not, <laughs> I mean, especially for you know, still being fairly fresh into Japan, you know. So no, they they took really good care of me. Well, that's that's great. That's great. So, how, like, a lot of people do a homestay, coming from a different country, but you had already been in Japan, and then got to do a homestay. How how is that? Is the way to do that different than um, if you were still living in the U.S., for example? Or how how did that actually work for you? Oh, gotcha. I would say uh, having a homestay is really cramps your dating life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because uh, they wouldn't like you to bring uh, friends over, even uh, male or female friends over as well. But uh, I would say a homestay is really awesome because you get to experience a lot of the things that a normal Japanese person would. Like, for example, New Year's, you would have the traditional New Year's meal. Uh, like, you know, in April, you might get some seasonal food. So you would get, and uh, also, like, you know, like I think Setsubun. So I think not all families celebrate all the traditions, but uh, with the family I stayed with, they celebrated all the traditions. Also, uh, uh, my friend's sister had children. Okay. So I also got to experience a lot of the traditions that they have for kids as well. All right. Well, that's that's really cool then. Um, the... so I hope that's a good summary of uh, what it's like to have a homestay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you were able to get all all the cultural, um, like a crash course in Japanese culture, all within that six. Uh, what did you say? Eighteen months, right? Yeah, that is correct. Oh, that's that's pretty good then. That's good. So, um, what? Where did you move on from there? So, um, so I did that for eighteen months uh, because my friend got a job in Tokyo. Cause he was doing job hunting for a bit got a job in Tokyo and uh, I was I just had, I had a girlfriend so I decided to move out on my that girlfriend is now my wife but uh, I moved out to another part of Nara and uh, it's about 30 minutes from uh, 
Namba Osaka. And I was still doing the same job, but I essentially taught elementary school for two or two and a half years in a row. I think about two and a half years. Okay. Then I think around after my fourth year, I went to Japanese school for、uh, nine months. And I taught, I went to Japanese school full time for nine months. Okay. And I was teaching part time and I did a translation internship. At a law office in Osaka during those nine months. Wow. Okay. So you had built your Japanese ability up so much that you were able to start doing freelance, or sorry,、uh, you were start, starting to do translation work. Yeah. So through self study, I, I brought my level up to an N2 level.、Mm-hmm. And、um, so I went to Japanese school to get N1. I see. I see. Yeah. And as I was doing that,、uh, I was doing the translation as well to see, or I was doing an internship, so it was unpaid. And、uh, I wanted to see if translation was the right thing for me. And I'm guessing it wasn't the right thing for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I would say, even though it was an unpaid internship, I learned the very important lesson that I definitely don't like written translation. Okay. I would prefer interpretation, even though I'm not really good at interpretation as well. Right. <laughs> yeah, but just you know, spending hours in front of a, a document going through and finding the best way to phrase it you know, while, while keeping everything correct, yeah, it's, it doesn't sound that, that much fun.、So. Yeah, no, it's, it's or I'll say、um, no judgment,、mm. but it's not for me. Right. Well, it. it Also, could be the subject matter that you're having to translate to. I mean, you said it's for a law office, correct? Yes.、Yeah. I'll translate a lot of their emails to their foreign clients to make、okay. sure that the foreign clients、uh, would understand very clearly. Okay. Okay. That's、so、a... it, wasn't, it wasn't fun content as well. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I could see perhaps if you, know, you were into games or something and you were able to translate. You know, Japanese scripts to English for, for video games, that might be fun. Or, or not. They, it might actually turn you off on, on, on something if, if you didn't really enjoy the work. So, But,、um, so you, you were going to school full time and you said you were teaching part time. Were you at this point living on your own again or were you still with the、uh, homestay family? Oh, I was living on my own. Okay. And how. How were you able to、um, pay for school and live comfortably on part time work? Had you saved up money from before? Yeah, I saved up、uh, a decent amount of money、uh, by doing the ALT work. Okay. But also、uh, doing ALT work in the countryside where the rent was,、uh, I think my rent was 40,000 yen again. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's quite cheap. That's、uh, roughly. At the time, roughly about 400 American dollars, is that correct?、Oh. Yeah, I think it was, at, yeah, at that time it was about 400. And also, the food, my food costs were low. I didn't really go out too much. I think I was able to keep my expenses around maybe 80, 80 90,000 a month. That's pretty good. That's, that's, you're, you're doing much better than a lot of people because,、uh, you know, especially a lot of newcomers. You know, they, they want to go out and socialize and、um, you know, meet 
meet new people and in Japan that means drinking you know like all the nomikais and drinking parties out there so you did you go to these events often or or, or just sort of kind of back away from that lifestyle I think one thing that's much different uh, now I live in Tokyo but um, in when I was in Nara and Osaka we actually had a lot more house gatherings okay so like in Tokyo you pretty much always go out but uh, when I was in Nara and Osaka, it's pretty much 75% of the time we did things indoors. Okay. So someone would come to my apartment or uh, I would go to a friend's apartment and would have a house party. Right. Okay. So that not only is cheaper, but it, it sounds, you know, better for, for making closer friends, you know, instead of just meeting randos at the at a bar or, or a izakaya or something, you know. Yeah, I think yeah. Tokyo and Osaka are completely different. Yeah, yeah. I I just I knew just from visiting Osaka a few years ago that the vibe was completely different than Tokyo. So I enjoyed going through Osaka. Tokyo not so much. <laughs> so I would say Osaka is amazing for living. Hmm. Uh not as much career opportunities. Okay. Or you can't compare it to Tokyo. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. If you could get both it would be the perfect city. Osaka. Or if you could no. get, uh, yeah, if you had the career opportunities you have in Tokyo in Osaka, I think that would be an awesome city to live in. Yeah, yeah. It seemed like a very chill place when I went. So it was it had good, warm, welcoming vibe to it as opposed, uh, for me, Tokyo's always just felt really cold. And, you know, I guess like difference in New York and L.A. perhaps, but... Yeah, maybe, hmm. maybe kind of like that, yeah. or like old old school New York. Yeah, old, old school New York, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you, why why did you want to get to in one level? Uh, because for a lot of people, in two is quite good, and a lot a lot of uh, people studying Japanese stop there. Why did you decide to go ahead and pursue in one, which is the top top grade for the language test? So I think after uh, I think after teaching for about two and a half to three years, I really had that switch on saying like uh, uh, I love teaching. Uh, I love my Japanese coworkers, uh, great people. They took really good care of me. But it's time to really develop a career and uh, develop a career that would pay over what's uh, three million yen a year. Right. Right, or even four million, pay over four million a year. Okay, and you were able to pass the N one after going to the school. Yep. So uh, I am proud to say that I've only taken the JLPT test once uh, because I wanted to save money. Right. Yeah. It, it <laughs> so is... I never. T- uh, yeah. it, it is like four or five thousand yen. Uh, and uh, so maybe about like 35 to 40 bucks now but uh, I didn't want to pay that money every year in uh, the transportation fees so I just took the highest level once passed it by one or two questions and never looked back yeah that's uh, very similar to mine I, I've only passed in two and but uh, I, I right after I passed in two I, I thought about pursuing in one and I 
bought some books and you know did my my normal self-study but after a while I just in just my day-to-day life chatting with with people doing uh, doing business in the language and then being able to you know buy a car get my own place and everything I thought yeah I'm I'm pretty good you know maybe maybe sometime down the road I'll, I'll try it but uh, for me it wasn't oh, it wasn't necessary at the time so oh, I gotcha. so yeah. I think the reason I really wanted to go from N2 to N1 is uh, I think foreigners who've been in Japan for 10 years probably understand this but uh, when I started I passed the I passed the damn test around I think 10 years ago exactly yeah but at that time 10 years ago uh, you needed N1 okay like if you wanted to work for a Japanese company you needed N1 to get in the door uh, some I'll say I wouldn't say open-minded but I would say some uh, more relaxed places would consider it N2 but I would say predominantly you needed N1 just to get an interview okay so the hiring practices have become more lax then because from from what I've been hearing at least in the past few years, is N2 is really all that's needed in a lot of companies these days. Yeah, uh, based on my experiences, what you learn in N2 is what you actually use in business. Okay. As opposed to N1, it's peacocking. Right. It's just, hey, like, look how great I've, look how much time I've put into studying and, and showing off your advanced grammar, you know, so... So I think those who pass N1 may take offense at the way I've described the difference between N1 and N2. But uh, I think you summed it up perfectly uh, because there's things you learn uh, for the N1 grammar that is essentially peacocking. Uh, The vocabulary section, listening section, and reading section of the N1 is very practical for Japanese your Japanese studies, but the grammar section is impractical, meaning that, uh, like, I, I, I passively understand 50% of it still, but I cannot actively use it because you don't need to actively use it. Yeah, um, from what I understood was a lot of the grammar was used in more um, technical and legal documents, like, you would never speak the grammar, it's only used in written in the written Japanese. That is correct. Yeah, yeah. So um, unless you're working in a very highly technical field, you probably won't be using some of it. I, I'd wager, right? That is 100% correct. Okay. And it's, uh, I think it's a combination of kind of like technical Japanese, but also, uh, I don't know the, the word described, but like, you know, like novels. Okay, okay. Yeah, and just... As a personal thing, I think the best way to to understand novels is just to read novels, you know, because <laughs> because <laughs> if you're to the point where you're reading a novel anyway, if you come across something you don't know, it's easily identified. You know, you can easily look it up and, and learn it as you go along, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's totally true. But uh, f- from the study books I had, um, I thought, like you said, the vocabulary and the kanji were actually quite useful the in one level uh, kanji and vocabulary were quite useful for everyday Japanese yeah I think uh, so I think if you're considering taking the N1 
it's that's uh, I think you should take that in mind before you devote a lot of time and money. Um, and on these tests, is there a lot of repeated uh, grammar, like kind of not review, but for example, grammar that appears on in two will appear on in one as well. That yeah, there is uh, I think maybe like five to ten percent. Okay. okay. So it's uh, it's not a. I guess it, it is a significant amount because you need seventy percent to pass. Right. So, so somebody, if their goal was to really pass in two, but they wanted to really knock in two out of the park, so they studied for N one, that wouldn't be a practical thing to do. You think? No, that's no. not practical. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, very very similar to you. I I just gone through years of self study, and I took in two as my first time and I passed it and uh, I thought wow I skipped ahead of you know the first three levels but um, I, I get actually at the time that I started there were only four there were only four levels and I think they've added a fifth tier to, for the oh, a, like absolute beginners yeah it's like a consolation prize yeah yeah <laughs> but uh, so you said you had worked for Interac is that correct Yes, uh, what happened was, uh, so my girlfriend, now wife, uh, she got a position in Tokyo. So to be honest, I actually thought I would live my whole life in Osaka, not a Kansai area. Because I really liked it a lot. But she got a really nice job in Yokohama. So I decided to come with her to Yokohama as well. And the other reason uh, I decided to come was uh, I was doing job hunting in the Osaka area, but uh, it was pretty much limited to translation or joining a Japanese company as a university graduate level. Okay, okay. So it just you'd be like one of the new new faces amongst all the the fresh Japanese graduates, right? Yeah. And, uh, uh, my, when I did my job hunting, it was uh, so I misinterpreted what casual dress was. Okay. Because <laughs> I was the only one dressed casually. <laughs> I was like, oh shh, yeah. can I swear? Oh yeah, you're you're fine. Don't worry. I was like, oh shit. Uh, this am, why am I the only one who's dressed casually when they said you could dress casually? Yeah. It's like okay, uh, I get what you're implying. So. Yeah, so this might not be for me. So describe that then, because um, if they mention for, especially for um, Westerners, if they see that they say casual, oh okay, maybe business casual. So they they wear they don't wear the suit and tie or anything for the interview. That's, yeah, I took that, it. I took it literally. Yeah, yeah. So would you just come in like a, a hoodie and jeans or something <laughs> with some? I, I know there are some jeans involved. Yeah, yeah. That's one one thing I learned very early on in Japan. Even if it's casual, no jeans, no shorts. You know, like that 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 doesn't mean. The, I think the only time it's I've heard it's appropriate to wear jeans or like some sort of you know parties or you know if it's related to work, parties are, are fine. But uh, anything else, just go with the most uh, 
non-casual casual clothes you can find if it says casual for it <laughs> yeah if you're if you're going the traditional uh big company route yeah yeah so ha you said um you never actually worked f for a big japanese company is that correct other than interact under the interact but that that's focused on um language teaching for the most part right yeah that is correct so so a non-teaching related company you you never worked for no i think the closest was the internship okay and at we, the law firm okay and when you did you have an interview for that yeah i had an interview for it um ironically i was introduced to them by a foreign friend who had used their services okay so a, uh, a customer introduced you to them say hey you yeah, should work for these guys and they want a hard legal battle okay okay so that's that's good on their rep then <laughs> yeah yeah so um was the interview in japanese then actually i don't remember but uh i think it was I wrote to the I wrote emails to them in Japanese. Okay. Okay. So, because um, have you had an interview for a job in Japanese? I have. Okay. And uh, that at the time, I think now they're more. Uh, I think they've interviewed so many foreigners nowadays that uh, you can tell the difference in level. Right. But at the time, uh, they're essentially comparing me to. Korean, okay, a little bit of Chinese, but mainly Korean and Japanese applicants. Right. right. So at the time, I actually I don't think I actually I made it to like the second round, but actually uh, my spoken Japanese wasn't good enough. Okay, so you could pretty pretty much understand what they were saying, but you weren't exactly sure how to word the response correctly is that yeah correct? it wasn't as smooth or I, I would have to take time to think about it mm -hmm. but actually it's, uh, it just came up for me but I think the biggest reason why I didn't get a lot of positions was I couldn't write kanji <laughs> really it was the actual written because you, you, you couldn't you know like scroll, yeah because all, all notes the, in kanji right so all the forms were in kanji okay Okay. So, so. I would say I think I'll I'll yeah, I would have to narrow it down to three factors. Uh, yeah, I would say the kanji was a big one because you'd have to write the form in kanji. I could read the whole form, but then I would write everything in hiragana and like and like they would ask, me, "Oh, can you write kanji?" I'm like, "Oh no, I can't, but uh, I can type it." Yeah, yeah. Or if, if I do write kanji, I have to look at it, you know, to in order to that. That's kind of how I started filling out forms was like. Um, every form I had to go to write my address so in the beginning I thought well okay I don't I don't know how to write it from memory so I'd look at my registration card and just caught <laughs> and I would do the the proper stroke order because I, I I knew the proper stroke order for the kanjis but I didn't know how to recall it without looking at it so oh, I gotcha so, you know, I mean you know take you like a minute to do something like take Japanese person five seconds right right and but now I've filled out so many forms I can I can do the uh, the address quite well <laughs> it's it's Sweet. yeah it's when it comes to other things that aren't related to my home address I'm like okay 
where 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 do I find this kanji? So I have to look it up on the phone if if I'm not exactly sure how to write it. But um, I know my handwriting has gotten much better with having to fill out forms. So that's <laughs> that's one one positive aspect of Japanese bureaucracy that uh, that's that has actually helped me. <laughs> so. <laughs> so I'd say it was the writing. Uh, the writing. I think the writing was about fifty percent. I'd say speaking was probably around twenty uh, percent, but I think connected with the writing is uh, I couldn't pass a lot of the entrance tests for the companies. I see. So because I couldn't write out the thing I wanted to say in the time allotted. Okay. For okay. Japanese applicants. So I, even though I was at an N1 level, I would consider myself a low N1 level, mm-hmm. and at that time like 10 years ago uh, unless you were lucky you really needed to be like uh, you needed to be a badass yeah so basically just being able to blow the Japanese applicants out of the water with your with your level almost. yeah because yeah. I've, I've had a lot of friends get hired into Japanese companies at the N2 level I think okay. maybe like you know four or five years ago and like when I heard they had hired by a Japanese company, because I knew their Japanese level was like, really? Yeah. Like, what's going on here? So it was, uh, so I think luckily Japanese companies reduced their standard and expectations for foreigners. I don't know if that's a uh, good, good thing or bad thing, but. <laughs> all right. I, I think you didn't really have a choice. Yeah, at, at this <laughs> point, yeah, they're, they're, they're becoming a bit more desperate, I think, but. Um, and I think there's a lot more uh, I think four or five years ago there are a lot more new companies like right. they had just started they're getting some traction and hey we need to bring in a foreigner now yeah yeah so there's it's been an upswing in startups in Japan in the recent years which is good I, I think there needs to be more but uh, it's, it's in the right direction I think I think uh, Tokyo has a very vibrant, vibrant, and booming startup scene. Uh, you can't compare it to Silicon Valley, obviously, or uh, and it's unique in its own way. But uh, it is a very booming city in Tokyo. Uh, there's a lot of people who have ideas, a lot of people who want to get things done. I think there's kind of a dearth in talent. Uh, I, I mean, considering that. Uh, I've successfully created a business. So I think um, the passion is there. Uh, the potential is there. But I think the two things holding it back is uh, people who've successfully created a company, who've sold out and have a lot of money, right. who can create the... In, or I'm not sure if... Th- is this interesting for your audience, you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- this is very helpful information, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's uh, so I think that's one. There's you don't really have uh, the so that's why Silicon Valley is booming so much. You've had all these people who are they have several hundred million dollars, some billionaires, and they pour that money back into the ecosystem right. as uh, venture capitalists or uh, investors, seed investors, or like I'll say early stage, or I guess you'd say middle stage. Hmm. I'm trying to avoid being too technical, but uh, yeah, well, I, that's what I was just thinking. You, you said, uh, you know, there's seems to be a lack of of people who created companies and then got a lot of money, 
right? And the first thing that popped in my mind was investors, you know, so or venture capitalists, people who, you know, the the money behind new companies, pretty much, yeah. And unfortunately, uh, uh, I guess I'll talk about it because I think uh, I have more knowledge about it than most people. But uh, like I think companies like you know DNA. Uh, like Lakuten and stuff like they are putting uh, some investment into the startup ecosystem uh, but uh, I would say they're more on kind of like in the buyout phase okay like, than as like a venture I would say they are more on the acquisition side but some of them like you know like the guys who founded DNA and stuff they do invest money in new companies but it's definitely not at the money levels and uh, the frequent, I'll say, actually, in some cases, they do put a lot of money, but uh, I, they don't invest at the frequency that uh, I think would be, would definitely benefit the ecosystem. Right. And other thing I'm seeing is that uh, it's actually I'm not sure if you're, you are out. There's something called like incubators and accelerators. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like uh, an incubator helps incubate your idea. Kind of work things out an accelerator is kind of like you got your idea but you want to accelerate your company's growth okay so like two different directions that you you'd like to take for for your company or your idea yeah. pretty much depending on the stage of your company but uh the ecosystem in the u.s for accelerators and incubators is there's tons of them out there and uh, they'll help new companies develop and start but in Japan, there are a few incubators and accelerators. Uh, the problem, uh, I don't know this. I, uh, I can't judge all of them because I know I've heard some of them are pretty decent, like uh, like meaning several, like two or three are pretty good and decent. Uh, I don't know anyone who's been to those. But uh, some of the ones that I do know of, they're not run by successful entrepreneurs or meaning like maybe they failed once or twice right but none of uh would say no no one who you would consider like uh badass per se yeah no no mega stars in that in that field yeah, no so it's people who more or less uh they might have had like a really small exit or uh maybe they failed and they want to uh, be coaches. I, I see. Yeah. <laughs> because they weren't, they weren't an all-star player. Yeah. So, so they go <laughs> to uh, the next best thing is consulting, right? Yeah, yeah consulting as yeah. well. So yeah. I think uh, uh, just for your listeners out there, if you're really considering incubator accelerator, uh, you really need to do your research on the support they can give you because uh, maybe they might not be the best operators. Right. Which is essentially what you really need is, uh, I guess, someone who can help you get money, but also someone who can give you advice on how to really run a company. Yeah. And, uh, a successful company. What do you think is keeping, the biggest thing keeping Tokyo back from, from growing as it could uh, in terms of influence with IT and, and uh, startups and, and whatnot? I think uh, I think the money's a big one. Money? So money's a big one. 
uh, just having uh, investors or especially uh, early stage investors. Like, because um, recently, or they call it angel investing, which right. is really usually for the really early stage, like friends and family. Are, and uh, I've met people who are angel investors, but um, I wouldn't really, I, I think um, I kind of miss, or they want too much traction. They want too much of a sure thing. Right, right. <laughs> Before investing their money. Yeah, so I, I, my my image, at least for a lot of Japanese businesses, are they're not as they're not as risk taking as maybe Western or American, specifically American um, yeah. companies or business would be. So I would call a lot of the angel investors I've met uh, posers because they're not really I wouldn't consider them angel. Yeah. I think they're just trying to apply the same standards as. Uh, they're looking for more of a sure deal, right, right. So, as opposed, or as opposed to what my idea of what an angel would really be is, uh, you'll make like ten bets, and uh, probably eight of them, seven of them would fail. Right, right. But that one that makes it uh, pretty much takes care of you. So there's a lot of people calling themselves angel investors, but I'll just call them poochie investors. <laughs> yeah. I think. Or, or poochie meaning it's a cute way of saying tiny. Yeah, yeah. So they're they're getting there, but uh, they still need some time to uh, to take take a bit more risk because yeah, that's that's what a lot of people don't realize. In order to succeed, you just got to fall flat on your face more often than you'd like to. You know. You know. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah, fa- failure is not necessarily bad you just have to learn from it and improve upon that failure but in order to succeed you're going to have to fail numerous times you know yeah in some yeah. cases uh yeah. i i got lucky because uh my business partner is or he's a savant so uh yeah yeah i got lucky but yeah in other <clears throat> cases you might have to uh fail a bit to learn but i think the the problem is uh, i think failure is is needed it's a good process or it's not a good process but uh, it's a process for some people mm. but I think when you have failure plus posers ah, that's <laughs> that's where you get into some some trouble there yeah like because yeah. I, I met a dude who's like oh yeah I'm a COO and it's like I looked up his company and they're like 10 staff yeah and it's like no you're not a chief yeah you're like, you know, you're just part of the crew <laughs> Yeah, you're a co-founder, but you're not a COO. Like, you're, if you're managing hundred people, millions of dollars, complex operations, you could consider yourself a chief operating officer. Right. If you're running ten people, that's that's not that's a very low level of complexity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's um, that's one thing. Uh, just the the size of the company too. So just because let's say you found a company, if there's only you know two or three people working for you yeah you're you're just in the beginning stages you're not you know you, you don't have any influence so to speak so um now, uh, kind of like your question about like uh people not wanting to take risk i think that's one element and like uh although i, I kind of just all right this people who were uh calling themselves angel investors but uh to kind of uh bring the other point of view for their side is uh there's a lot of people down in Tokyo, uh, young people, older people. It's, um, I think they misinterpret entrepreneurship as the escape to freedom. Right. 
meaning rather than the ideal situation for them is just find a new boss but they mistakenly think that uh, entrepreneurship will free them from not having a bad boss yeah yeah it's some kind of magical land but then you realize that actually the customer is your new boss yeah so say goodbye to the more centralized boss and and say hello to numerous bosses with each different personalities and wants and needs so you're just like yeah. expanding your your uh, your stress levels with that and nowadays because it's so competitive to get talent your employees are kind of your boss if you're starting a company yeah yeah i mean even even that you have to kind of not bend to the the whims but you you do have to take into account other people's wants and, and needs um with with doing that so th there is freedom involved with it but it, with every good thing there's always you know the flip side to it as well that you have to deal with so so i think for the listeners who are out there you know you're you're thinking like oh entrepreneurship sounds cool it's this glamorous place i'm considering uh, I think the first question before considering entrepreneurship is uh, one, is it really your boss you're trying to escape? And if that is the case, maybe a different company, a different job might be the solution to your problem. Right, right. Uh, yeah, because there's there's all sorts of factors with starting your own company that a lot of people don't think about, you know, because um, if, if they're working a job and they have a position and they do it quite well that's great but that doesn't mean you're suited to start your own company focused on that job because there's all sorts of other hats that you have to wear in the beginning that you may not be good at and you'll have to find other people that can help you with that and that in itself is also another process that you might <laughs> not be good at is is vetting out people who can successfully help you in that field you know yeah let's say normal employment uh, vastly under prepares you for the challenges and complexity of running your own company I think you phrased it a good way in that uh, there's all these things new things you'll have to do and if it's uh, if you're only doing what you're good at as an entrepreneur then uh, maybe you might not even be an entrepreneur you might just be a solopreneur <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that that actually might be appealing to more people, you know. Like, uh, they they just want to do their own thing, be their own boss. Well, have the clients be the boss, but not really have to deal with other people, such as employees or, or anything. I mean, yeah, the the workload would probably be higher, but for their peace of mind, they're probably happier in that sort of role as a as you said, solopreneur instead of an entrepreneur. You know. Yeah, I, th I think. And I th I'm glad you brought it up, but I think that would be also probably a second thing, uh, second thing to consider before considering making a company. Right. Because uh, a lot of the people I talk to who want to create a company, I feel like they, uh, they, they're not mentally prepared for it. Uh, meaning, uh, although I didn't do much research into entrepreneurship, uh, I had about two years of savings. Uh, I prepared in advance to make get the savings to do it, and I quit my job with 
no idea what I was going to do, but I knew I was going to make it happen. Yeah. But I was prepared to not make any money at all. Yeah, you were willing to risk that those savings just to try and and do what you had set out to do. Yeah, my goal was I really wanted to create an interesting uh ser- provide an interesting service but also create an amazing company culture. Right. And I believed in creating an, a company culture so much that uh, I was willing to take zero money at first. And I oh, think a lot of people that I talk to, it's uh, it's more like, oh, how much? Or like, yeah, I like to start a company and I like to make about a thousand bucks a month, thousand five hundred bucks a month. And like, uh, uh, although I don't have that much money to be honest, uh, even the company is really successful because uh, we focus a lot on developing the company, right? As opposed to taking high salaries. Yeah, uh, that's that's one thing I noticed when um, I, you know, you invited me to some of the. Uh, company events a few years ago that you even when you had a small number of schools at the very beginning you were creating a culture there and that that was your base is creating the company culture and then from there it has grown and now Uh, now you're starting to see more more returns but you wanted to make it right at the beginning instead of trying to get as much money as possible in the beginning and not creating the the structure the base the culture of the company first yeah it was it was the total i would say it's the the highest not the highest but uh a very high level of delay of gratification yeah Yeah. (laughs) which i'm still waiting (laughs) well hey i mean it's uh it it'll it'll come but would you also say that just seeing the company grow from where it started to where it is now that in itself is pretty gratifying right yeah it is uh i'll say it's very impressive because uh, uh, i think we have about 80 teachers right now yeah. 80 or 90. Uh, i think all of them work a minimum of three days a week but uh i think maybe 10 to 15 are full-time um, but we have about 120 staff total. I think like about 30, maybe 30 to 40 full timers. Seven schools in different locations. Uh, we got Shinjuku, Ikebukuro, Shibuya, uh, Yokohama. Uh, we got three other not as famous locations, but pretty good locations as well. Yeah, I mean, you hit the the most popular spots in Tokyo, though. You know, for for schools. So because um, I think. When we first met, you had, I know the Shinjuku school, and you were just opening the Shibuya school, I believe. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, I think that was like 2015. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That sounds right. Yeah, I was just opening those two schools. So we've gained a lot of traction. And uh, so right now we have a lot of full time staff. Uh, We really have to think about uh, HR functions now. Yeah. Yeah. Like when you start your company, it's not like, oh, okay, how do I do visa sponsorship? How do I uh, pay? F- how do I enroll my staff for a national pension? Or Chicago can like social insurance? Yeah, uh, yeah. Or how do we do their taxes? And it's kind of like it's like when you're starting your company, it's just like, okay, I just want to eat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but, uh, we're kind of pay the bills, you know. So we're kind of at the level where we got all the basics down. It's just more like, uh, how do we expand faster? Right, right. The the growth, um, 
growth of the company. So, uh, but how would how much um, influence would you say the uh, you've had a few uh, TV spots and commercials, right? Yeah, so we've been uh, featured on national TV. I think one program had like an audience of eight million. Wow. And it was the host was for those in Japan who watch TV, you definitely know her, but uh, Matsuko Deluxe. Yeah, yeah. Featured us on three of her shows, or sorry, two of her shows, but we made three appearances. Wow. Okay. So I, I I thought it was just the one time, but you've been on there three times then. Yeah. So actually, you know, John, our buddy John, yeah. uh, uh, he was actually the teacher for one of them. Great. Wow. I, I didn't know that. I, I'd like to find this. Is it available on YouTube still? No, I don't uh, think it's... Uh, I think you, you can ask him and he might be able to... Okay. I think he might have it recorded somewhere. Right, right. <laughs> or I hope he does. Yeah. How much... How How much did the did that help the company in, in terms of growth? Um, one you, you were already on a trajectory course at that point, right? So one was we had to upgrade upgrade our web servers just <laughs> yeah. to handle that level of traffic after the TV program so the site wouldn't crash but uh, it's luckily now we can put it on our flyers okay because it's someone that all Japanese people know yeah unless you're living under a bush then uh, all Japanese people know Matsuko Deluxe so it's yeah. on our new flyers that's coming out I think uh, in a couple weeks okay That'd be that'd be nice to see. <laughs> so that would be kind of one of our sales point. Also, it's uh, we actually originated the concept of the low cost English school, hmm. not that's in person. So I think they always had the Skype lessons uh, that would connect you to people in Malaysia and the Philippines. Right. But we're the first low cost physical school. Right. Right. And, and we've that... had oh, uh, we've had about maybe eight companies copy our business model wow so that's what is that uh, uh imitation is the best form of flattery right so 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 we created it now uh we have people copy our pricing model uh so now it's more like uh how can it's not just defended but how can we outpace them right right yeah yeah so i think several two of them received uh over a million dollars in investment. Wow. Okay. But we proved the concept. That's why they got the money. Yeah. Exactly. So I mean, you have that going for it, right? So, um, now, how did you? We. I, I feel we didn't really skip anything, but your your journey here. Uh, how did you go about getting into the management aspect? Now you said you worked for Interact, right? And then. You started off as a teacher for that, and then went to a management position, or how did that, how did that transition happen? Yeah, I was a teacher for three months, and I got promoted to management. Okay, that's that's quite a quick promotion. Uh, I guess the the tip I'd have to give out there is, uh, I was never late. Every request they asked of me, I did it, and I did it very well with no complaints. That's, and, that's the right attitude to have as a new employee, I think. <laughs> and I, maybe that's what set me apart. <laughs> All right, I don't want to go out. So that, so that did separate me from a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. The fact that uh, whatever they asked me, I did it. I did it well, and I didn't 
pitch and moan. Yeah, yeah, okay. So they gave you the promotion to, what What was the initial promotion? To be over over other teachers, like a teacher manager, or uh, what, what, what exactly? Yeah, I was a trainer. Trainer, okay. So you went from teacher to trainer, and then from there, how did you end up, you said you managed how many teachers? Uh, hundreds, right? Our team of five, we managed uh, 600. 600, okay. So I guess, so the management levels of my current company, it's, uh, I've already done it. Right, right. So you're, you've had experience managing, uh, you know, um, several times the amount of employees that you have now. Um, how, how long did you do that? And what was the best aspect of, of managing a large group of people and the worst aspect of it? So um, I think there's, so I did it for about three years, I think, or about like uh, three and given so like two or three months. I'll say the best aspect was, uh, although we don't keep in touch anymore, uh, the team I worked with, the management team, uh, they were very awesome to work with. And uh, I think because uh let's see, in, we had 600 people, we got to really choose some of the best okay. to work in management. And so uh, everybody had different skills. So I learned a lot about uh, kind of like doing sales, like how to talk. Uh, I learned about how to present. Uh, it really changed me to improve my email skills because because uh, working as an HR manager for Inter, it actually is, you're kind of a salesman. Hmm because uh, you really need to, and also kind of like a coach or meaning like uh, working as a teacher in Interact is not the dream job for most people who work there. Right. And because of that, you really have to step up your game to be a good manager in Interact because uh, people won't take you seriously or let's say uh, it'll, it'll get hard to do things at a good level. Right. If you're not persuasive, or you don't know how to, or you don't know how to coach people to use that experience to achieve their goals, right? Right. Meaning like someone wants to get out of the English industry and be like, okay, uh, here are some things you can do in your school that will apply for a management position. Get these things done, and I'll will take care of you. So I mean, like really taking care of your staff in Interact is pretty tough, and I think having that kind of um, there's a lot of pessimism among the teachers. I think being in that tough environment really was beneficial to me as a manager because I really had to talk to a lot to the teachers there to, you know, really understand their challenges, their problems, and also provide them content they wanted. Right. Yeah. So you're not only having to, I wouldn't say be a people pleaser, but please them in a way that you can help them out, but also help the company out at the same time you know yeah to yeah. be of service to both sides and i think a lot of managers in those companies fail because they're maybe it could be the company structure i'm not i can't talk about other ones uh i could only i can only talk about interact at that time yeah uh interact about five six years ago but uh they gave me a lot of freedom okay as long as the customer didn't complain they're happy yeah right right <laughs> 
So I had a lot of freedom. And so I think a lot of managers don't do well because they focus too much on what the company wants. Yeah, yeah. And really, it's your customers that are the sole reason your company exists, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say, actually, like, uh, from my experiences in in track, it's, uh, I'll say my 95% of the teachers there, a lot of them are, some might be a little bit weird, but uh, a lot of them, uh, most of them have a good heart. Yeah. Well, I think that's just what you're going to get with a lot of people who come and teach overseas is, well, or with not just that field, but any job, really, you're going to have your fair share of weirdos, but most people are probably going to be decent heart, you know. Now, um, how for a, a job, like just for teachers, uh, uh, as you said, like Geos, Interact, companies like that, the turnover rate is quite high though, right? There's a lot of people who only come to Japan for a short time, one, two, maybe three years, and then they go back home. Um, did you find that to be the norm, or were a lot of people actually looking to stay longer and, and move to different positions? So I'll say compared to Ikaiwa, I would say more people stay in the ALT business for longer. Okay. And why do you think uh, that I'll, is? I'll, I'll say the average turnover rate is, I have to separate it because uh, if I have to say what is the turnover rate for a Filipino teacher at Interact, mm-hmm. it's actually very, very low. So we have a lot of teachers who've been there five years, 10 years. Right. But I would say for your Westerner, I would say it's about two years. Two years on average? And uh, Yeah, on average. And I think for Ikaiwa, it might be about 1.2 or it's definitely lower. Uh, the reason people stay longer in ALT is because of the vacation. <laughs> ah, you get all the school vacation days, right? Yeah, and so you get a, all, I think, like 40 days a year. I think in, nowadays uh, you don't get fully paid for it. But the vacation time or finishing work, you know, at like 4 p.m. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very appealing. So it's yeah. Schedule. Um, the best thing about the ALT position is the pe- like, uh, I think it's a good way to learn about Japanese culture, but also the schedule is amazing. But the problem with a lot of people in the ALT business is uh, foreigners, they get too comfortable. Yes. You have two months of vacation a year, six weeks of vacation a year. And you're not doing many things to improve yourself during that break. Yeah. You might be gaming or uh, uh, this is not to, I, I love games, but it's uh, if you're playing games during the whole break and not doing any studying or skill up. Right. So I think the problem with the ALT business, the schedule is amazing, but I think a lot of the people who are in it, they don't know how to use their downtime mm. effectively to build skills that would apply for other industries and it's I would say it would be fine if the money was there in the ALT industry to pay you higher salaries right but the money's not there and, so it and there's there's sort of like a, a glass ceiling on most of those ALT positions of how much you can earn is that correct that is correct and it's because it simply comes down to how much money you get from the customer. Yeah, yeah. If yeah. they had, if they had like a premium brand, like uh, I think Rosetta Stone has like a premium teaching brand where you teach CEOs. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, 
yeah. but I mean, of course, they're going to pay a lot more money for that type of teaching. But in the AOT, there's no, up, there's no premium brand or there's no uh, higher paying customer. Yeah. I mean, there is a higher paying customer. But I mean, it's but they're not paying like triple the amount. Right, right. Quadruple the amount, which would really be neat. So I think uh, the problem I see is that it's not a career. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, uh, what I found is a lot of people who do ALT work. It's not everyone, obviously, but um, a lot of people I've met. They almost it's almost an extension of their college years in a way. Like they they come right after college and they still live a very similar lifestyle as they did in college. It's almost like a working holiday in a way. Like take a couple of years, live in Japan just do just get the ALT job and take all the vacation time that you get to you know just have fun you know so which is totally fine yeah, I mean uh, yeah nothing wrong with it but it's what it is but you can't go and complain that uh, let's say oh they're not paying me enough money they're not giving me enough raises because by saying that if you fundamentally don't understand what the system is yeah 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 I, I mean would you equate it to sort of like a f fast food position in a way? Like, uh, I mean, not not in terms of like the pay, but because obviously they get paid much more than someone working in fast food would. But in terms of the career aspects of it, in a way. Yeah, and I guess that would be similar in the sense that if you work in the fast food industry and you come to work on time. You get the job done. You don't complain. You don't gossip. Uh, you get, let's say, you ask for opportunities to grow, right? And you'll get promoted. Mm -hmm. so it's, uh, to be honest, I don't think it's uh, or uh, after creating a multi-million-dollar company and seeing the level of skill you need to do things at a very complex level, actually to get promoted it's not actually that it's not that complex yeah yeah you just gotta show gumption really if bring that word back but you know you just gotta you know do do your work do it well don't complain and don't cause trouble really and and show as you said the most probably the most important one is show an eagerness for to grow you know yeah definitely is the eagerness because uh, the biggest uh i think the one reason that uh if you've been in a company for a long time and you're not getting promoted, uh, I'll probably narrow it down to several reasons. One would be is uh, you might be overestimating your abilities. And because you overestimate your abilities and you're maybe very confident, I wouldn't say confident, but, but if you have what people would consider a strong personality, people aren't going to give you feedback. Yeah. And you'll go years. I've seen people go decades not evolving as a teacher because they already thought they got it done, that they're a great teacher. Right. And also, uh, people misunderstand compliments from Japanese people. <laughs> mm, <laughs> they yeah. that they're actually complimenting their abilities. And it's uh, and when I was at Interact, I saw over 150 to maybe 200 teachers teach lessons. So I knew what an amazing teacher was. Right. You, if you see two hundred people teach, you see the difference. But if you don't, if you only see like five people, 
you really don't have that objective view. So I think one thing holding a lot of people back is probably I would say even 70% is, I'll say 70% is probably uh, you overestimate your teaching ability and no one wants to really give you feedback about it because it's such a negative experience for them to give it to you. Right. Uh, the second one is kind of ties into that the eagerness you mentioned. It's uh, so you're a good teacher, and uh, but the question is, are you eager? Are you asking for opportunities to advance? And I'll say a lot of there's a lot of talented people in Interact who we never promoted because they didn't show that initiative. Like you know, give me opportunities. Uh, I want to take on a project. Uh, I want to do this seminar for my or like I'm a teacher, but I want to share this with my teachers. Can you give me something I can do to show my teachers? Right. But I think a lot of people they're like, uh, oh, are you gonna pay me? Yeah, that attitude. Like, yeah, yeah. What what do I get from it first before what benefit can I give? Yes, I think if you have a transactional view of doing work you'll forever remain at the lower levels yeah yeah and that, I mean it's very similar to people who live for example paycheck to paycheck many of their the people who do that the mindset is it's very transactional as you said you know what do I what do I get from it as opposed to what can I give you know later so um it's it's definitely in the uh, the mindset. Mindset has a lot to do with it, I think, as well. So, yeah, and uh, <clears throat> so I think yeah, that mindset for that. Uh, and the third one would be uh, leadership. So, for example, you might be eager, you're a good teacher, but when you're around your fellow cowork fellow teachers let's say, you kowtow to the lowest common denominator. So rather, if someone does something douchey, you don't say, or you don't call them out on it. Right, you just kind of let it slide. Yeah, um, you're just, oh yeah, I'm chill. Yeah. It's like, okay, but being a manager is not always, you have to do things that you won't be liked for. Right. Or you might not be liked for in the moment. But yeah, but later on, they'll, they'll see it. Yeah, that's... Um... That's one aspect. You're right. I mean, you can't always just be everyone's friend, you know, especially if you're in a leadership position. You have to separate the uh, the business and the personal aspect of it, you know. So it's, uh, I know it's tough, you know, like having uh, your buddies around, but uh, if you want to get promoted uh, in the English industry, just think about those three things. Uh, stop or be receptive to feedback and uh, ask for feedback and create such a create a situation where giving feedback to you is a pleasant experience yeah yeah that if it's not people are gonna avoid you yeah so that that's really good advice um, so you've you've transitioned from working at the company managing people and then you uh, formed your own company with with two other uh, guys right uh, Japanese investors right uh, or they, they were hands-on they're ha oh, they are hands-on okay and they invested money as well okay so, <laughs> so uh, they, they uh, actually 
put their money where their mouth is, so to speak. Yeah. So, no, that's good. That's that's very good. And you found, so First far, step. the working experience for that has been positive. Yeah. If, if I found it to be a positive experience, uh, kind of that investor note. If you meet someone and they want to start a company, but they're all about OPM, other people's money, then they're, let's say, they're not passionate enough. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so if they truly have like a vision in there, they'll they'll invest anything that they can, you know, to get get that off the ground instead of worrying about get where where they're going to get it from, you know. So, well, that's good. And so now, how long officially? How long has it been since you started One Coin English and to this point? Yeah, I think it's been about five years. Five years now. Okay. As officially as a company, about four and a half, okay. but uh, five years as a whole. Well, wow. congrats! I mean, that's that's uh, amazing growth in a very competitive area of of Japan. So, uh, have you thought about down the road? I mean, expanding to other areas of Japan, for example, like opening opening up areas in Kansai and and places like that. Yeah, that that will be a possibility. Uh, or I think, or like uh, to show how competitive it is. Uh, I think when we started our Shinjuku school, I think there were about twelve other schools <laughs> yeah. within a five-minute walk. Within a five-minute walk. Okay. Yes, it's yeah. still the same. Yeah, including uh, the the big names that a lot of people go to. Yeah, yeah. I'll say, and half of them are big names. Half of them are. Uh, more regional players like they might have like five schools six schools seven schools right right um what but what i've found um having a a smaller school is sometimes people enjoy the more intimate setting aspect of it as opposed to just a big corporate school with hundreds of other students you know um yeah i, th I think uh I think I, we're more at the, the corporate end, but we try our best. But yeah, I think that's the cool thing about having uh, a school with under 200 students, about 200. Right, right. And one other thing that's I've noticed that's a bit unique about your school is you, your English teachers are from all over the world, not just the standard cookie cutter um, countries like America, UK, Australia. I mean, you have teachers from everywhere, correct? Yeah, we even have a teacher from Saudi Arabia. From Saudi Arabia, so that's... Uh, Indonesian, uh, we have uh, one from Venezuela, Ecuador, uh, say Switzerland, I think over 25 countries. Right, right, and up until I saw that, I thought, I, you know, that, that that's the first time I had seen uh, company hire English teachers from all over the world like that because um, for a lot of uh, one one question I have for that is how have the students reacted to that because um, I wouldn't say I'll just say this Japanese people are used to when they think of English speakers they think of the normal English speaking countries you know that that you would associate with 
being native English speakers, but how, how is the student's reaction to having a teacher from Venezuela or, or Saudi Arabia be their English teacher? It, do you find that they find it more appealing or because it's unique, they've never seen it before? Or where, do you have some that still request someone from the US or UK or something like that? Honestly, we still have people who request teachers from or uh, their reservation behavior. Okay. <laughs> Indicates that they have a clear preference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for teachers uh, from those countries. But uh, me personally, I think it creates a much more interesting work environment and culture by not having everyone with come from the same background, the same culture, uh, the same cultural references, the same interests, like different sports, different customs. And I think uh, although I enjoyed my coworkers uh, while working with mainly native speakers, I thought there was a bit, uh, I wouldn't consider a dynamic environment or dynamic meaning that uh, like you really opened your mind. Right. Or like, so I think if by working in a school that is focusing mainly on native speakers, I think uh, you might be more close minded than you are. You, you think you're, you're open minded, but uh, you're probably actually more close minded than you realize. Right. Right. Now, the one issue I can see with having teachers or staff from different parts of the world is the more the different the more different countries that you have that people are from, the more distinct and unique cultures that you have to interact with. And they what uh, interacting with someone from one country might not work with someone from a different country in terms of um, just human relations. Right. You know. So has that been difficult navigating how to interact with people from cultures that you're you're not accustomed to? Yeah, it's, it's probably, I think Westerners communicate with other Westerners pretty easily, you know, like European, uh, American, Australian. Because I think we kind of have a common framework. Right. But uh, I think when it's the East versus, or not, or the East and the West, or like the South and the the south and the north yeah. i think there's a lot of big differences there so i think uh one is indirect versus direct communication right and i think that that one is a challenge because uh i'll say the east side is more indirect while the west is more direct yeah yeah but the so i think the problems that come from that is the east might not say their opinions or might not express themselves to the extent that the west would like to hear but the problem I see with the West is that they say ideas that haven't been formulated, processed. They need to take more time to think about something before they say something. Yeah, leap before you look, right? <laughs> yes, I think Easterners, uh, my if I'm just making a prediction, or if I'm just describing 70 to 80% of people yeah. uh, don't say their opinion enough, while Westerners say their opinion too much too much right right and or they, they overestimate their level of knowledge yeah yeah so have you found any sort of culture that seems to be a good balance between the two or just people learning as they go how to deal with different cultures yeah to be honest uh, I'm I, it, I don't think balance the yin and yang exist right right 
there's oh. extremes on all sides, right? <laughs> and uh, I would say, although the Chinese invented Taoism, the balance, uh, I wouldn't consider Chinese practitioners of the Tao. Right, right. I, th I think they follow more of a Confucian way of thinking anyway. Is that right? I don't know. I mean... <laughs> yeah, like kind of like, you know, respect your elders. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm I'm probably some I'm not um, just but what I'm just trying to simply say is uh, I think everything is it's just the middle way so right. it's, you shouldn't always express your opinion because you might not actually know your opinion even though you think you do or you don't have enough knowledge in the area you haven't formulated you haven't brainstormed enough uh, but other times you need to say something so you need to find that middle ground right right well, that's that's very interesting. That's um, it's definitely good advice for anyone who's looking not only to just come over here and, and teach, but also if they have any aspirations of cl not not necessarily climbing the ladder, but but going beyond just being an English teacher here, you know, um, just to how to grow and what what is actually needed to do in order to get get there, you know, to move beyond just being an ALT or a Kaiwa teacher, if that's their their chosen course into Japan. So, um, yeah. one one uh, question I wanted to ask was, um, what at what point did you decide Japan is where I'm going to stay? Was it uh, with when you met your your wife, or was it the job aspects that came first? Uh, what uh, what what motivated you to continue working and staying here as opposed to being another person that stays here for a few years and then just goes back home? Uh, the <clears throat> ones was uh, I liked how being in Japan separated me from the drama of friends and family back home. Okay. So uh, uh, in my early 20s, uh, I would say I was overweight not obese, but overweight, uh, had confidence issues, and, um, you know, I was just trying to get by. And so being in Japan separated me, or like, when I couldn't even lose weight or manage my own weight, uh, I'd have to take on a lot of the emotional burden from my family and friends right. in Hawaii. And I think being in Japan kind of separated me from that, so I could really focus on discovering who I was as a person or who I am as a person now, but who I am as a person and just focus on really taking care of myself before trying to help other people. Because if I had stayed in the U.S., I'll be too focused on trying to help other people right. when uh, I can't even help myself. Yeah. And I find that to be a really big problem with the U.S. is that people uh, try to help other people. People are very kind, do a lot of volunteer work, uh, provide support to a friend, but uh, I feel a lot of people are actually not qualified to provide to that service, right? People, yeah. And even as just a friend, I think uh, you really need to know who yourself as a person first. And so I think being in Japan, uh, because I had the Gaijin card that allowed me to kind of be more free, express myself. Yeah that I felt that I could just focus on myself really hmm. 
Mm. And I think that has been fundamental in helping me develop as a person. And I've had other foreigner friends as well, say like uh, one of my uh, black buddies said, like being in Japan saved his life. Wow, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I I think I discussed this on a, on a previous podcast as well, um, that it wasn't until I moved to Japan that I was able to actually grow up in a way. Because not to say that I couldn't do it back home, but completely changing the setting set the stage for me focusing, as you said, you know, you focus on yourself and, and personal growth that way. And um, at least for me, it was it was a good catalyst into moving in that direction and um, learning to do things on my own and, and just becoming an adult as opposed to just staying in the mindset of a, of a young kid, you know. So. Yeah, I think uh, in the U.S. it kind of traps you in that, right. especially right. all this past history. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I'd definitely love to uh, to talk about. That's a whole other topic that we can get uh, really into is uh, personal development and self development, which you've had a lot of experience on as well. But uh, I would say probably more than ninety nine percent of people. Yeah, yeah. So. But uh, for this one, I think that that about does it. Uh, that's that's a very very helpful information. Thank you, Tyson, for coming on, and uh, you're always uh, welcome back because uh, I think we have a lot more to discuss. Uh, not not just in career aspects, but uh, um, where can people find you online, or uh, what would you like to uh, to tell the audience before we go? Uh, so. For myself, uh, I've pretty much achieved most of the goal, my goals in life. Uh, one was to have uh, a wonderful marriage and good communication with my wife. I have that. Uh, I have created a very successful business, multi-million dollar business. I've uh, accomplished that. Uh, I've done it in a way where I don't feel I've compromised myself as a person, where I didn't do. Uh, shady deals or anything like that right it's like i can live on my own terms and because of that uh i feel i have a lot to share with the world if you're not interested in what i say it's totally fine but if you are uh i would like to share my experience of self-growth but also uh extreme responsibility and because i've accepted a high level of responsibility I'm never really a victim. That's great. That's uh, that's awesome to hear, and I completely agree. Uh, yeah. <laughs> as for you can find me personally, uh, you can just look up my name Tyson Batino on LinkedIn. Uh, I may not respond, uh, depending, uh, or I don't do coaching personally. Right. But uh, <laughs> so I, I'm trying to think. Uh, I'm. A little bit hard to access, to be honest. Okay. Uh, based uh, based on the level I am in the, I guess, startup community. Okay. But, uh, so for my Japanese school, it's called Japan Switch. Japan Switch. You can go to, uh, so turn on your Japan Switch, uh, but uh, www.japanswitch.com. Okay. If you're interested in taking affordable lessons in Tokyo. Uh, we don't sponsor 
student visas. But because we don't sponsor student visas, we don't have to follow the government educational guidelines okay. and teach you things that you don't want to learn. All right. Well, there you go. It's, it's more practical. Do you do, you do online uh, courses yet? No, we just do in person. In but person. Uh, we do it during the off hours of our English school. Okay. But it's based in Shinjuku, five minutes from JR Shinjuku. And uh, you can check us out at www.japanswitch.com. Okay. Uh, if you're looking for a teaching position, it's uh, onecoinenglish.com, as it sounds, and forward slash hire me. Hire me, okay. Forward slash. Or if you could search uh, part-time jobs in Tokyo, I think we're on the second or third page of Google. Oh, great. Wow. That's that's uh, that's quite high up there for Tokyo. So. Yeah. And we did it, or I figured out a way to do it in like two, three months. Yeah. And the other one is, I'm also, while I'm focusing on the Japanese school for three, four months to build the system, uh, everything out, after that, I'm going to be focusing on uh, building a platform for providing foreigners information that is useful for living in Japan. So one aspect is jobs, one aspect is learning Japanese, and it's housing. And the website is BFF. (laughs) Tokyo.com. <laughs> BFFTokyo.com. Okay. I'll say we have a pretty good sense for naming. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. So, um, JapanSwitch.com. One, BFF. Tokyo.com. Tokyo.com. And, and English.com forward slash hire me. Okay. And I'll include all of those in the show notes. So if, uh, people want to actually click it they'll be able to <laughs> okay it's yeah. hidden at the moment on bff tokyo but okay. uh uh but we have we've written two blog posts so i think they're about 15 pages combined okay on how to learn japanese vocabulary and listening and what i share is tech or how to learn but also kind of cultural aspects, differences that you might not have noticed or that you don't notice at first. Okay. And uh, essentially what I needed to do to get an N1 level. Great. And so that website will be providing pretty much guidance for noobs or, you know, people fresh off the plane coming to Japan. Yeah. Yeah. And I think because the English school is very successful, uh, I don't really need to make much profits from the BFF Tokyo site. Right, right. So it's my goal is more just providing uh, useful and honest information. Yes, yeah, that's that's an important keyword there, honest information as well. So, well, great. And I, yeah, so we're hoping to essentially kind of do like what Tokyo Cheapo used to be before they became uh, cluttered with advertisement. So I think they're a pretty shitty website, right? Or they're a good website, but it's becoming more shitty, unfortunately. Yeah, due to um, advertising and, and whatnot. Yeah. yeah. So we're hoping to try to be awesome like uh, Tokyo Chipo used to be. Used to be. <laughs> that's that's a good tagline for it, right? <laughs> but uh, anyways, Tyson, thank you very much for being on. And um, we'll, we'll provide all the links to the audience down below. Is there any last thing you'd like to say um, it could be anything uh, 
yeah, I guess my the thing I'd like to share to everyone is just uh, you, based on my experiences of managing uh, with a team over 600 people, creating a multi-million dollar company, meeting a lot of people, I think that a lot of people, there are so many good people out there and that I think a lot of you can't see your potential. And for me, that's my biggest uh, kind of disappointment work with people is I sometimes feel I'm the only person who can see their potential and that they themselves can't see their potential and brilliance. And the reason for that is the way you see the world is very limiting, mm. limited, where I see the world as a world of opportunities. And so the thing I'd like to share with you to summarize it is uh, you actually have more potential than you you know you have. Great. And it's just uh, you have to create an environment where uh, you can really, I guess, discover who you are, find out your strengths, but also uh, really remove blaming others for things. Yes, that's that's definitely an important one. So, so if you haven't been promoted, it is your fault. You could have changed jobs. You could have offered to do more. Right, right. Great advice to end on. So thank you again, Tyson. And hopefully we'll be uh, speaking to you again soon. Yeah, take care.